Hey, welcome to the Scrum, WGBH's politics podcast. I'm Adam Riley with Peter Kadzis. Hey, Peter. Hey. In this episode, you're going to hear a conversation with me, Peter, and Ed Lyons, the moderate Republican activist and commentator who says Governor Charlie Baker is creating what amounts to a third party here in Massachusetts. But first, Peter, I have to ask you (laughs) about Deval Patrick's presidential bid. You and I first talked about the possibility of Patrick seeking the presidency about a year ago. He ultimately decided not to do it. But then, as you and our listeners know, he changed his mind and jumped into the race for the Democratic nomination last week. My question for you is, based on Patrick's rollout and the first few days of his campaign, are you more or less optimistic about his chances of becoming a factor in the race than you were when you first heard he was thinking about doing it once again? You mean, do I think... Is he a kamikaze candidate? Is he a kamikaze candidate? Does he have a chance to become a legit candidate who catches on? Is he going to pull enough votes away from some candidate or the other to alter the outcome? Uh, The simple answer is I don't know and we don't know. It's a very unpredictable election cycle. And Governor Patrick, former Governor Patrick, um, usually a shrewd politician, has done something Drumroll, please. Very unpredictable. Um, I think one reason why it's hard to, to, to spin forward on this is because so many of us are cranky or, you know, we have to settle down. This was a bolt out of the blue. No one thought he'd do it, myself included, because it seemed like, you know, such a potentially wacky thing to do. But he's done it. So... myself, I'm going to take a week or so and just calm down and watch what happens. Putting my blood pressure aside, I don't think we'll really know until around December 15th. Um, I've picked that date arbitrarily, but he needs a couple of weeks to get up and going. That has the ring of truth. And a lot of people, I include myself here, unfortunately, are very eager to size up the full meaning and uh, end outcome of a particular factor or situation scenario before almost any time has passed at all. So your, your cautionary note is, uh, is I think you're, you're very wise to urge that we but, hold off for a little bit. I, I think, but, but I think while we hold off opining on Patrick himself, I, I think there are some political factors we can think about. One is that uh, Buttigieg has, you know, no traction in the African-American community. Um, Warren and uh, Warren in particular, as with Buttigieg, has great traction with college-educated white professionals. Um, you know, the managerial class, if you will. Take these two facts. Um, is there some room for a candidate? like Duvall, there could be. Um, it's very interesting that uh, former President Obama, you know, basically warned the left of his party about going too far to the left. Sounding but, essentially exactly like Patrick did as he sat and took questions from those of us in the media when he went up to file his paper. That's right. You were there. I, yeah. I totally forgot that. No, it Look, sounded like Patrick was doing, uh, pardon me, it sounds like uh, President Obama was doing his Deval Patrick impression. There's no way you're going to convince me that, you know, Obama's not in the woodpile somewhere. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Um, 
But let's give it three weeks. Let's see what happens. I mean, listening to excerpts from his speech in California, the rhetoric was fine, but he's a little rusty. I mean, as, as you and I and our colleague David Bernstein have been saying for years, when Deval Patrick is on, he's a better speaker than President Obama. Yep. He's a little rusty. We'll see. You, you know, he'll have to get back. Um it, it's also a very curious moment because I think we're suffering from political overload. And by that, I mean we have an, an intensifying presidential primary, series of primaries that he's pitched into. And we have the uh, impeachment drama getting unfolding in Washington. Um, you know, the whole Don Nation is on political overload, at least those who are paying attention. Yeah. Let me throw a couple quick follow-up sure. questions at you. Uh, does the fact that Pete Buttigieg is now looking really good in Iowa, the strongest that he has yet looked, notwithstanding his weakness among African-American voters, does that diminish the rationale for Patrick's candidacy a little bit? Because Buttigieg is pitching exactly the same sort of collegial bipartisan moderation that Patrick seems to be. No, in a in in an identitarian sort of way, it makes Patrick's candidacy uh, potentially stronger, because if the thirty-five-year-old or the, the 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 young mayor from the Midwest doesn't at the moment have traction with black voters, who were very important to the the uh, Democratic victory. Um, a black guy who has proven appeal with white voters, hmm. you know, is important. The, the, you know, I often feel uncomfortable talking about identity in politics. This isn't. This is, you know, proven track records. And Deval Patrick has a proven track record as, a, as you know, uh, a solid African-American candidate who has immense appeal to many white voters, including white working class voters. All right. Another question for you. Is there room in today's Democratic electorate for a guy who, before he was governor, was a top corporate executive at Coca-Cola, at Texaco, and served on the board of directors of AmeriQuest, the subprime lender, before the financial meltdown? Well, here's the problem for Duvall. <clears throat> If he had run earlier, this wouldn't be an issue to the same degree because he'd be able to say, I've seen the light. I'm putting this behind me. I'm a class warrior. Look, there are a lot of long knives out for Deval Patrick, just as there are a lot of long knives out for Joe Biden. Um when I say we'll just have to see, he'll have to fight his way through it. I mean, he's no shrinking violet. No, he's not. He's not at all. You're right. All right. My last question for you before we get to, to Ed. Are you as curious as I am about what was said in the conversation that Deval Patrick had with Elizabeth Warren the day before he announced, which, according to Deval Patrick, was a hard conversation for both of them? I'm not curious. I have a pretty good idea. <laughs> I have a pretty good idea of what was said. Would I like to hear? You bet. I would love to hear I, the audio. I, I, I somehow don't think it would be fit for, you know, family consumption. That's true. But, and this uh, is a family podcast. Yeah. Your point is well taken. All right. On that note, 
Ed Lyons is a Republican activist and political commentator who regularly opines over at WBUR. He's a big fan of Governor Charlie Baker and not a fan at all of President Donald Trump. And recently, in a piece for Commonwealth Magazine, Ed argued that Baker is creating a de facto third political party here in Massachusetts right in front of our eyes. Ed Lyons, thanks for coming in. It's good to be back. Thank you. So for people who haven't read your piece or need a refresher, can you synopsize your argument? How is Baker in the process of creating what you say amounts to a third party? So the place to begin is the real fallout between Governor Baker and the leadership of the Massachusetts Republican Party. Uh, Until we elected a new chairman uh, several months ago that the leadership of the party were very loyal to the governor and would at least be complementary to his agenda. But unfortunately, people who are very conservative, who are very in favor of Donald Trump, have taken control of the party positions. They've taken control of the money and the message of the party. Um, and they disagree with Governor Baker's style of politics. They like him. They want his money and popularity, but they will get neither. And that there's been this huge rift between the leadership and the governor that has unfortunately made it difficult for him to do any sort of party building or fundraising or gathering of volunteers through the party. It's been a problem for months now. And uh, this new super PAC that's been making headlines, the Massachusetts majority, seems to be the vehicle around which that Baker's extended network of volunteers and donors and popularity will do kind of the moderate Republican work that Baker wants to do without the Mass GOP. You say do the moderate Republican work he wants to do, but in the most recent elections, they endorse Democrats and Republicans, right? Sure. I mean, I'm a, I'm a moderate Republican who's voted for Democrats in the city of Boston. I think that it's not a violation of being Republican to vote for good Democrats. Baker has a lot of Democrats who have supported him, who voted for him, who work for him directly in the administration. For him to want to support Democrats is actually quite normal for him. So what was the reaction from the governor and the governor's people when you made this argument in, uh, I was going to say in print, I guess it's virtual print, virtual ink, you know, a widely respected political publication. What do they have to say to you? Oh, well, I haven't heard anything from them. And at this rate, I may not be invited to the Christmas party in a month. We'll, we'll have to see. There, there's been no pushback because I just uh, my assumption was uh, erroneously, I guess, that the governor or more likely some of the people who work with him would have said, hey, Ed, you know, you're really overstating this. The governor, you know, uh, it did something very reasonable in the last election cycle, but he certainly is not trying to build an official or even semi-official party separate from the Massachusetts Republican Party. But they didn't do that? No, they don't have to do that, right? Because we know each other and I know what they think. And and that the piece came out Sunday. Yesterday was a holiday at the government resolve. It's not like I've seen them all, all week long at the Beacon Hill coffee shop. I think that they would say, and this is delicate stuff, right? That they're not coordinating with the super PAC. And the super PAC is is not a political party by itself. My my point was that you can they can't coordinate with the super they, PAC they, as they, our listeners. It's actually there are laws against yeah. it, and they're and I'm sure the people in super PAC are being very careful about not coordinating with with the governor's power base and his network. So that I'm confident they believe they're not creating a party. But my point was to say, well, what is a party? And is a super PAC plus his network of volunteers and donors and everything else together? Do they make a de facto party? I think the answer is yes. I'm sure they would say no as soon as they talk to me. Yeah. See what what struck me about this and it was you know by far one of the more the most interesting thing i've read about you know hashtag ma Pauly, as we say on twitter um is um 
it was just out of the it was an out of the box observation, not so much thinking. But if I <clears throat> I'll give you credit up, for thinking. Yeah. Uh, well, it's like if you could pick the idea up, and listeners can't see what I'm doing, but I'm like as if I'm holding a, a gem or something in my hand, holding it up to the light. Um, to to me, it it. Um, sheds light on the fact that even though Massachusetts is seen as a uh, increasingly far-left state uh, because in part of the election of um, uh, Ayanna Presley and Rollins uh, for district attorney and the big um, swing in the Boston City Council, I, 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 I should qualify that. It's, it's a swing to the left on the Boston City Council, but on the back of a very thin vote. But, you know, the headlines have been progressives on the move, progressives on the march. But I, I, I still see Massachusetts as a much more moderate place. The way this pack is operating seems to bear that out. You know, I think one of the great unexplored stories on Beacon Hill is the the relationship between uh, House Speaker Robert DeLeo and Governor Charlie Baker. And I suspect that that relationship will go unexplored. <laughs> um, but but there's a lot of common common ground among centrists that we just don't read about in the newspapers. Yeah, I mean... Or I hear about on the airwaves. So there's, you're right, there's so much said about the leftward tilt in the city of Boston, but Massachusetts is not the city of Boston, and there are plenty of people who are not registered partisans who are skeptical of the binary choices being offered. I think that one of the reasons why Massachusetts majority, which is the name of the super PAC, is so compelling is there is this huge middle. It doesn't mean these people are centrist. It doesn't mean that they don't usually vote one way or the other. It means they're just open-minded to what Baker's governing philosophy is. They overwhelmingly support Baker regardless of how they vote. And I think that there is this huge middle lane that neither party has. And Massachusetts majority is a lot of money and donors and people aimed at that middle. That's why I agree with you. I think it's compelling. Who's giving money to this group at this point? Well, there's been some reporting recently. Um, we have some disclosure of super PACs in Massachusetts, which is good. Not every state has this. So it looks like what's visible right now is you know, CEOs, the kinds of people who were big donors to Baker or who like his politics, it's very much like corporate establishment right now. But you wonder whether or not, as they get more involved, will more kinds of people take hold? Were people who, would people who have given to the mass GOP or maybe to the mass Dems say, hey, this is a more focused vehicle. If I give to mass majority, I can support, you know, left of center Democrat mayors. I'm confident they'll, those mayors will get support of this rather than giving it to the mass Dems and it could support someone who is much further to the left of me. I, you wonder whether or not more donors gravitate toward the super PAC as a more effective, focused use of their money. It seems to me like for that to happen, and I'm just you know, doing a sort of a real-time thought experiment here following your lead, Ed, but it seems to me like for people to become avid contributors to the super PAC, they'll need to think that it embodies some sort of coherent, ideological identity. And I'm wondering if it's too soon yet. We, you, by the way, we know Charlie Baker has an ideological identity of sorts, even though I'd say it's all about pragmatism. But um, 
for me, one of the counterexamples, potential counterexamples to your argument is the fact that mass majority backed Shauna O'Connell in her run for mayor of Taunton. I think of Shauna O'Connell, maybe I'm not being fair her, but I think of her as someone who is very much in keeping with the sort of direction of the mass GOP right now, someone who is sort of a favorite legislator of Howie Carr's. He does not represent where I think you're arguing Baker wants to go with this thing. So has mass majority figured out yet what it wants to be about or what its unifying principles are? So I don't think mass majority is an experiment. I think if you raise a million dollars in six months, this is the implementation and not an experiment. I do think that they are going to support some people that don't fit the mold. But don't forget that parties and other PACs also occasionally support people that don't seem to fit their ideology because of some sort of patronage, debit, and credit they feel like they need to pay. So as others reported that uh, Sean O'Connell's campaign for mayor was caught up in Lieutenant Governor Polito and the governor in terms of how she got and, and all that. She was has been loyal to the party in some ways. She's very conservative, but voted to, re, to raise the minimum wage. She's not quite the caricature she's presented as. Yes, the Jim Lyons and the, uh, the party chairman and other conservatives really love her. But yet, I don't think we should look at her as sort of like, well, you're on this team or this team. It may be the fact that if this is really about Charlie Baker's world, that he has debts to pay off that aren't necessarily in line with centrist ideology. And some of the recipients now and in the future were not, are not going to fit that mold, but that will be okay because parties sometimes do that. They have a debt to pay and they do it even if he's not in, in line with what they believe. It's interesting. On Sunday, when your story surfaced, um, I, I know this, the usual degree of hostility. I mean, people who know you think of you as a, you know, a, a gentleman, a relatively mild-mannered guy, and your um, Twitter manners are, I would say, to the extent to which Twitter has manners, uh, rather old-fashioned. But you really rile some people up on Twitter. Why do you think that is? I mean, I'm asking you a leading question, clearly, but... I think that Twitter is full of people who are very into politics. And as I often joke, the people who don't like Charlie Baker are political activists on the left and the right. So Baker is very polarizing on Twitter in a way that he's not um, in reality. And I think that super PACs are a very radioactive issue because people like me believe that our campaign finance system has tremendous problems. And this sort of seems like something taking advantages of the flaws in our system to do something that doesn't seem above board. So I... I assume that both what, what has been done would be controversial and me trying to sort of like characterize it in a, in a normal way would have upset a lot of people. So I'm not surprised at that. Who did the abuse come from, by the way? Was it from the left or the right? I managed to stay off Twitter for more of the weekend than usual, and I think I was much happier as a result. But who was giving that a hard time? Uh, I, I would say the usual suspects. Okay. Ma many, of whom, ma many of whom listen to this podcast. Um, but I, I would say from the left. I, 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 I would say from the left. So... Um, at the outset, I asked you, Ed, what the response had been from uh, the Baker camp, and you said not really anything. What about from the mass GOP? Uh, they have been asked by a couple of media outlets. I do pay attention to these things. They have been asked to comment on Massachusetts majority, and they have declined. I think they are— So they're commenting there, by the way, not on your thesis, but on the existence of mass majority. Uh, no, they have opinions about me, but I'm not 
really in their way. They don't attack me in general that I, you know, right. or rather they're declining to comment on the super PAC rather than your argument about what yeah, it represents. Yeah, which, right. Which, which raises an interesting point. We've asked Jim Lyons a couple of times to come on. Um, and if he happens to be listening to this, we. Yeah, we'd love he, to have him. We would love to have him on. But the, 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 I find the mass GOP curious. Um, uh, they're uh, unrestrained in their criticism of Democrats, especially nationally. But um, I, I don't quite understand what they're about these days because the, the mass GOP seems to me to be largely a, um, uh, a support Donald Trump vehicle that has very little connection to local Massachusetts politics unless it is connected with um, uh, the issue of abortion. Yeah, I mean, so that, as I've talked about to your viewers in multiple forums, uh, on the straw man also into Greater Boston, that, you know, one of the fault lines is between national and state politics. And I think that a lot of uh, conservative activists really prefer to see themselves as citizens of a national cause. Uh, Chairman Jim Lyons and his supporters are those people. They don't like the compromises and necessities of our state politics. So they prefer to anchor themselves in national politics and that they're pursuing that because they can get interest and donations around that. They have a very hard time engaging with our state politics because it's not easy. There are compromises. And so they really prefer national politics. Massachusetts majority is meant to be a state-led initiative with mayors, other local races, state issues. The Mass GOP right now has no interest in housing, transit, the environment, healthcare, the things that are the important issues in our state right now. And so it's easy to say, oh, this is a moderate versus conservative thing. But it's, it's also useful to say this is a national versus local thing where that Jim Lyons really doesn't feel like fighting about local issues. Uh, he would much rather be a proxy to the national level. He'd rather take the Republican identity from other places and project it in here rather than what the Governor Baker is doing is saying, I'm going to practice it locally and project it to the rest of the country, which is why he opposed Kavanaugh and other things. I think it's a question of where where are you anchored? And for the Baker and mass majority, it's here with, with Chairman Lyons and others. It's in Washington or Mar-a-Lago. Let me ask you if uh, an updated version of your argument might convince you at all. I am wondering, and have been wondering for a little while, if there is an advantage for Charlie Baker to have the mass GOP now going the same way as the National Republican Party, focused on national issues, frequently professing fealty to or alignment with President Trump, in that if the mass GOP is training its attention outward, it reduces the chances of meaningful Republican opposition from the right to Governor Baker's program here in the state. And if if I am on to anything there, then you could make a case that Massachusetts majority is, among other things, a representation of Charlie Baker's willingness to have the mass GOP turned into sort of a uh, an energy release for forces from the right so that they do not come back and make his life difficult. Am I on to anything there? You are. Um, but the problem is, is that it, it seems to be a zero-sum game in terms of of energy and money and attention. So it would be different. So one of the reasons why Chairman Lyons and others are doing this audit of the finances of Baker's uh, supporters who were in charge of the party until he took over was the fact that their fundraising is suffering. Um, they're shutting down their Boston office, they're moving to Woburn, 
in a couple of months, that um, they will view Baker's success and Mass Majority's work as a loss to them in terms of support and fundraising. They will begin, they already are privately, they are, will begin to blame their problems on the governor and his diversion of resources to others. So it, this will not be simply, oh, well, they'll do their thing, he will do his thing. Their extreme opinions will, will make people believe in him more as a foil to them. There is much more at stake there, and I think that they will view their lack of success as something the governor did to them, and there'll be, I predict, within a year, an open war between the party and Governor Baker, where it's a cold war right now. Really? Open yes. war within a year? Yes. In what form would that warfare take? So Governor Baker and Jim Lyons are friends. They have been for years. They've done fundraisers together. Jim Lyons is always in the tent. And same thing in both directions. But I think at some point that the problems of the mass GOP will be blamed on the governor. This has been happening for years. Jeff Deal didn't win because the governor didn't support him enough. It's already what the rank and file are saying. Jim Lyons, because he's friends with the governor, has been trying to sort of say we're for the governor. We're not against him and all that. I think that will wear out very, very soon and that you'll see open conflict between uh, Baker's world and the party. That will be very corrosive. And, of course, this matters for a third term. It w if Governor Baker was not going to serve again, this would matter less because he could just let the party just simply ruin itself. But because he might want to run again, look what happened with Scott Lively last time. He can't lose the party, which is why I think that they don't want to engage in what I'm saying in terms of the this initiative because they don't want to seem like they're against the party because they need the party for a third term. So that's why this is going to be a cold war for as long as possible because both sides will lose if they engage each other. But I think it will happen anyway. Well, you just mentioned the magic words. I was just getting ready to ask you, did you think Governor Baker would seek a third term? And it sounds like you think he you will. Oh, yeah. And, and um, um, you know, it's interesting because um, a third term in Massachusetts politics would be uh, novel. I mean— it, A consecutive term would be novel. Yeah, consecutive term. Dukakis did it, as your as listeners right. know. I know, yeah. But um, what, what problems do you think the governor might have if he sought a third term? Um, be, because I think— seeking that extension to 12 years is different from the, the, the more or less natural growth going from four to eight years to sort of complete the job that you began. I think that people have term limits because they can't expect that a man like Governor Baker will come along that often. I think that that nobody has worked harder to be a governor for all, to do the right thing, to avoid scandal. I think that at 73% popularity, 67% as of two months ago, one had to run for a third term. I think he has shattered our norms and expectations around popularity. He's equally popular in both parties. That is unheard of all across the country. If anyone could run for a third term, he could do it. There are issues. The conflict with the party getting worse means that he, he, he's going to face resistance in the party. That will affect the process. I think the Democrats, because of national politics, are going to get tired of the Governor Baker telling them, eat your vegetables all the time. We can't have nice things. They'll do it. They won't beat him on policy. They'll eventually find someone with the identity to crack the code of Charlie Baker to run against him in a way that Jake Gonzalez and Martha Coakley did not. He's also getting older. He's 62 now. That he's not Superman. He's a youngster. <laughs> so I just think, but you don't know. I think at 66, he might be different. I'm not saying that, but I do think that that begins to become an issue. And I do think that 
that at some point that the aspirational nature of politics will leave Greater Boston and move to the rest of the state and Charlie Baker's technocratic style, which I like so much, may be less appealing even than it is now, especially once the MBTA gets back on track within the next couple of years. It may be the fact that there isn't some great mission that makes everybody feel like that it's worth accepting tech technocratic approaches when there'll be so many kinds of Democrats promising the land of milk and honey. People might be willing to accept technocratic approaches if they thought it was going to get them more affordable housing, say, or better transportation, not just the T, but better driving around the Boston area. Climate change. Is yeah, climate change, too. All right. Let me throw one final question at you. You don't think, if I read you right, that down the road, four years from now, eight years from now, whatever, we're going to see an actual incorporated Massachusetts majority party running their own nominee for, say, governor and going up against the Democrat and the Republican? Or do I misread you? No, I don't think that. Uh, pro People don't understand that Citizens United and the world of super PACs destroyed the power of political parties in America. It's not discussed very often. But the fact that one of the reasons why the RNC and the DNC have want so much to have campaign finance reform is they're no longer the big players who can raise money around a long-term vision with a, a geographic respect for different parts of the country, that they've lost power. The super PACs are now the big you know, big players in American politics, and they have been diminished by this. Even in the state, that the mass majority has already outraised the mass GOP within months. And I don't think anybody is going to create a political party or go through the difficulty of it when they can just create more sewer packs to do money. When you create a political party, you have to have town committees and, and, yeah, this whole and a state committee. I joke with the United Independent guys years ago. I'm like, you want to create a state committee? Have you ever actually seen one in action? Are you sure you want to do this? So when you create a political party, you're signing up for a world of constraints and friction and donation limits. And nobody is going to create a political party in the current campaign finance nightmare where sewer packs evade all of our ethics and our donation limits. So no, no one's going to create a party. But the question is that I raised is that what is a political party? Our political party ideas are, are, are about 50 years ago where you come together once in a while in person to create a platform where you create these town committees in places where you can't elect anybody. One of the reasons why Jim Lyons got elected is because we have all these people from places that can't elect Republicans, so they radicalized themselves and voted for a man who can't lead the state because there's no even geographic distribution of Republicans. I think the whole party model is completely out of date, and no one's going to create a party. But I do wonder, is there a de facto party, as I said in my piece, that can bring together volunteers? volunteers, resources, money, credibility, and power in a way that is a political party that does elect people. And the fact that it won't satisfy all the people for the last two days telling me I don't know what a party is, if they can do those things without meeting that 20th century rubric, that it still is a political party no matter what the schools tell me. Ed Lyons, thank you for coming in to talk with us. It's good to be back. It's been far too long. Yeah, it has been. And that is going to do it for another installment of The Scrum. Thanks to Ed Lyons for his deep thoughts and to you for yours, Peter Kansas. Thanks. But I want to just add my own thank you to Ed. Um, you know, over the years I've known him, what, what I find so interesting about Ed is he'll look at the same set of facts we'll all be looking at, and he'll just see something different in there. And that's a rare quality. That's a good point. And it gets back to that gem analogy that you were I guess, talking yeah. about. Yeah, holding it up. Yeah, uh, not a lot of us do that in the media or elsewhere. So point taken. 
And as always, thanks to you for taking the time to listen. Please subscribe to The Scrum if you haven't already and rate us while you're at it at iTunes or wherever you happen to find us. And let us know if you've got thoughts about what you just heard, either by email at scrum at wgbh.org or on Twitter. I'm at Riley Adam and Peter is at Kadzis. Our engineer was Dave Goodman. We get crucial production help from him, Gary Mott, Andrew Maswa, and John Parker. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.